Listen to this word that Paul gives. The Apostle Paul is speaking to the Christians in Corinth. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready for it. For you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in the human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. I feel like I say it more and more these days. Uh, it's almost as if we could just redo the first part of this service thus far uh, and do it again would be fantastic. But God has designed it by his wisdom for us to come to his word, to hear it proclaimed to us, for us to hear that word and by the power of the spirit for it to be applied to our hearts and for us, you and me together, to repent, to return to the truth of the gospel and there to find rest, there to find forgiveness, there to be fed, even at this table. So if you want to think about what the preaching of the word is about, it's about preparing us to come to the table. That's a great way to think about it. But in God's mysterious economy, it's also the way that you and I, as women and men created in the image of God, become more like Christ every time we hear it. Jeff loves to remind us when we gather together, this is cumulative. This is cumulative. Let's see what the Lord will do. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, we bow before you this afternoon. Oh, what joy. Oh, what sweetness to be gathered in the name of the Lord. Father, you have made yourself known. 
When Moses asked to see your glory, you passed before him and you said, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin to the thousands, but who will by no means let the guilty go unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third in the fourth generation. Father, we are your people and we gather in that name depending on your mercy and your graciousness, your steadfast love, the fact that you are slow to anger. Father, I have seen in my own heart in the last 24 hours how I am not like this. We know no being like you. And yet you have said that this is how we can count on finding you as we draw near to you. Father, we confess that we are like those who wander in darkness. And if it were not for you to reveal yourself to us, we would not know you. But Father, we praise you that you have not only made yourself known, but you have told us who you are, and in Christ you have shown us who you are. And so, Father, I pray that to a woman and a man, to a child in this room, you would allow us, as we gather together, living stones among whom you dwell, would you help us to see Jesus? And would we, your image bearers, leave this place differently than when we came in? Father, thank you for your word. I thank you for the foolishness of preaching. Father, um, surely we would not have designed it this way, but you did so that in weakness you might be made strong, so that we might be reminded that we belong to you, body and soul, that we are your people, we are your field, we are your building, we are your temple. Father, work in us what is pleasing in your sight. We praise you in advance of what you promised to do. It is with great hope and expectation that we come to you. And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray all these things. Amen. Well, I have been waiting for Corinthians to open up for me, and I feel like it happened for me this week. I don't know if you've been waiting for the same thing. We're about five sermons deep into 1 Corinthians, and it's not an easy book. I told you that there's a pastor in my history who said that he wanted to wait until he had been a minister for like 40 years before he came and tried to preach Corinthians. And I'm starting to understand it. Not only am I feeling completely convicted as a pastor, but I am feeling... Um, overwhelmed as I see the depth of Paul's love, not only for the Father and for his words and for his Son, Jesus Christ, but for his church, whom God loves and bought with the blood of Jesus. You all are his church. You are his temple. And to bring these words before you is really weighty. I want you to know that there are three easy things to think about when we look at this passage that's before us. There are a lot of words in these 17 verses, but I want you to see that Paul finally gets to the issue that he has with the Corinthian Christians. He finally gets to the issue. That's the first one. And the second thing that he's going to show us is that because of this issue that's present in the Corinthians' lives, there are two implications that he's got to address. 
their confusion about leadership and their confusion about what matters. And then finally he ends, not with those implications, but with their sure identity. The Apostle Paul has come so that the Corinthians might be encouraged, that they might be changed. We have two letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians. It's believed that there are at least three and maybe even four letters that we don't have anymore. But these two letters are before us. They are in the Scriptures. And I'm convinced that we probably need to hear them. But the issue that the Corinthians have is right in front of us. You can go ahead and turn to page 953 in those Blue Pew Bibles. I want you to look at these first four verses, and I want you to think the Apostle Paul is finally getting at the issue that he has with the Corinthian church. And make no mistake, the Apostle Paul's passion has increased in this text. We see that passion referenced in the questions that he asks the Corinthians, and we see it in the words that he uses with the Corinthians. I'm going to show you in just a minute. And his passion is elevated because the gospel is at stake, the church is at stake. Remember, Corinthians exists in this incredibly affluent and in this incredibly influential location. And so the Apostle Paul, because he knows God loves the church, loves the church, and he goes after the church. And we've got to ask ourselves, how might we be similar in ways to the Corinthian church but this is what the issue is with the Corinthian church. In verses 1 through 4, the Apostle Paul says, look, this is what I've got against you. You're thinking and behaving as mere human beings, though you have already received the Spirit. That's what he's saying. Make no mistake, the Apostle Paul considers the Corinthians Christians, right? In the very beginning, in chapter 1, verse 2, he says to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Jesus Christ, those who are set apart already, those who have been justified by the blood of Christ, and those who have been set apart, called to be holy, he says in the next part of that verse. In chapter, one, in chapter 2, verse 1, he calls them brothers and sisters. In chapter 3, verse 1, he calls them brothers and sisters again. He says, look, you are with me. Our Lord is Jesus. But I'm frustrated because you're thinking and behaving as mere human beings though you have already received the Spirit. Look at verses 1 and 2 with me. When we read verses 1 and 2, it simply says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk. And that's probably the Corinthians' version of what they were fed with because the Apostle Paul told them the gospel. And who would ever think that the gospel is anything but milk and solid food, the first thing that we need and the last thing that we need, the ABCs, but the A to Z of the gospel, right? But he says, I fed you with milk, not solid food, because you were not ready for it, and even now you are not ready. The literal reading of what he wrote right there is this. He said, I was not able to address you as people who were of the Spirit because you were not able to receive it and you're still not able. He uses that word able three different times. He's driving a point home. The Apostle Paul says, look, I was not able to address you as people of the Spirit. Nathan said a couple of weeks ago that whenever you see the Apostle Paul talking about people being spiritual as he does, the best way to understand that is people of the Spirit, capital S, 
That's what the Apostle Paul always means when he says it that way. Not spiritual like you and I might think that Shirley MacLaine in a new age is spiritual. Not spiritual like something that's cool in our culture today but people of the Spirit. He said, I couldn't address you that way because you weren't able to hear it and you're still not able to hear it. And he says, why? And we see in verse 3, he says, you're still acting fleshly. Now, there's nothing wrong with being a human being. He says in chapter 3, you are still of the flesh. You consider yourself a mere human being. But then he ratchets it up beyond identity. And he says, listen, isn't your behavior the very jealousy and strife among you, it says in, chapter, in verse 3, proof that you are of the flesh and behaving only in a fleshly way? It's just not identity. It's also behaving as the broken human beings that we are because of the fall, right? The Apostle Paul is saying, because you consider yourselves that way, I couldn't treat you, I couldn't speak to you, address you as people of the Spirit. He says their jealousy and their strife is proof that this is how they've behaved. He said your slogans of I belong to Paul or I belong to Apollos, which is what they're saying when they're saying I am of Paul or I follow Paul or I follow Apollos. They're saying I belong to Paul, I belong to Apollos. And Paul is saying, that's a human way of thinking about your identity. It struck me uh, this week, or this past week, while I was at General Assembly in Memphis, how easy it is for divisions and strife to crop up in the church. We identify ourselves with individuals in that group of folks that we believe are influential, don't we? You know, there's a word that was thrown around GA a lot. I'm a Kellerite, right? Those of you all who appreciate Tim Keller would go, oh, yeah, I recognize that word, and it sounds kind of like a word out of the Old Testament, doesn't it? And it's often used loosely, and, and, and when you're pressed on it, you don't really mean that I belong to someone's teaching, but without thinking, we often drift in that way. And even more so than what we take onto ourselves is what we put onto someone else. You are of the woke side of this denomination. You're of that part. And suddenly we see in our own tendency strife and division creeping in, don't we? We see that this is part and parcel of what it's like to be a human being who's in the midst of being sanctified. I want you to know that we are studying the book of Corinthians, and because we're studying the book of Corinthians, by no way do Nathan and I want you to think you are the Corinthian church. Praise God by his grace. I want to tell you that not only am I so deeply encouraged by the way in which you are growing in your faith, but I'm also so deeply encouraged by the leaders that God has given you all who are faithfully pointing you to Jesus Christ. But we have to ask ourselves, where are these warnings able to be addressed to us? This is the issue that the Apostle Paul has with these Christians in Corinth. They're thinking and behaving like they're merely human beings in their divisiveness and in their strife, even though they've received the Spirit. 
And the question that we would do well to ask ourselves in wisdom would be, how do we tend toward fleshly behavior and identity also? One of the ways that we can look at that is that we would understand that this list of jealousy and strife, this idea of acting fleshly, is a shortened list of something that the Apostle Paul gives later to the Galatian Christians. Listen to what he says of the works of the flesh. He says they're evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy. There they are. Did you hear them? Fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. It's easy enough to look at a list like that and go, thank goodness that's not us. But the Apostle Paul also gives a list of the fruit of the Spirit right there. And let me ask you, which of these do you and I find missing among us? But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You see, we would listen to this letter, believing that that issue might be an issue for us in some ways as well. We would do well to hear it and to move toward repentance. The Apostle Paul says that there are implications of this kind of issue for the Corinthians. Listen to what they are, and let's see what we can glean from them as well. In verses 5 through 9, we see that there is a confusion for the Corinthians because they think of themselves this way, because they're behaving this way. There's a confusion of whom they belong to, right? And we're going to see that in 5 through 9. And the second one is in 10 through 15, a confusion of what values, what really matters, right? So the Apostle Paul starts it off. He says, what are Paul and what are Apollos, right? You know that Paul and Apollos are the leaders who came to Corinth. The Apostle Paul brought the gospel to Corinth. You can read about it in Acts 18. When he went, he said that he was overwhelmed for some reason in Corinth. He was so scared that in the middle of the night, God chose to make himself known to him and said, don't be afraid. Paul isn't a leader, and Apollos was one that followed him who was known for his eloquence of teaching. He was an incredible expositor of truth. He learned very quickly, and he was able to articulate God's word. He was able to use all of the gifts of rhetoric to share with them the truths. And the people of Corinth began to pick sides. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Paul. We read it in the first chapter. And Paul is saying here, what are Paul and what are Apollos? And then he says definitively, he says, we are but servants. That's who we are. He's saying it doesn't make sense for you to think of yourself as belonging to a servant. Now, he picked a word that was heightened in importance for the Corinthians. Plato who was of the same era, well, within a few hundred years, who would have been well-known, and in the words of Socrates was able to say this of servants, how can a man be happy if he is a servant to anyone? But the Apostle Paul says, no, you don't understand who we are as leaders. You're confused about your leadership. You're even confused about your belonging because you're saying that you belong to us. 
But you see, the Apostle Paul goes on to say that he was tasked by the Lord, and he means Jesus Christ, to plant. And Apollos was tasked by the Lord to water their servants of God. But he says, look, any transformation that comes upon you, the gift of faith, is not from Paul or Apollos or any other leader. No leader gives the gift of faith. Only God gives that. Only God gives growth. The Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians, you cannot belong to Paul or Apollos because they belong or we belong to Jesus and therefore you, the church, belong to Christ as his field, as his growing. You belong to him. We together belong to him. The Apostle Paul is not saying, listen, I'm a fellow worker right alongside the Lord. That's not what he means by fellow worker of the Lord's. It means I am the Lord's. He possesses me, and I work where he tells me to work. I work along with him. But he is the one who owns me, and he owns you, the church, as well. Do we share in the same danger of identifying with something other than Jesus as the church, identifying others as something other than those who belong to Christ in the church? Are there, is there anywhere in our lives where we are also feeding this division and this strife? Again, we should think about it. If any of you know something going on in the church where you go, look, this is divisive for us. We need to talk. We need to pray. We need to come together. And if somebody says, look, this is divisive, I think it's divisive, we should not say, I don't know why we're spending time with that. I don't know why we're talking about it. We should come together and ask the Lord, is this among us? Are we this way? Because we don't want the confusion of to whom we belong, nor do we want the confusion of value. Listen, the Apostle Paul changes the metaphor from a field to a building as he emphasizes the implications that the Corinthians are confused about what you value. Now listen to what the Apostle Paul does. He is incredible. He says as he transitions, you're a field. Really, I want you to think about being a building. He takes the metaphor from field to building. So in 10 through 15, he's talking about the building because he wants to reveal to them their confusion about what they value, about what they think matters. This is a new metaphor. In verse 10, the apostle Paul says, look, as a wise master builder, look at the note in your Bible. It says a little one right there, go to the bottom. And it says, or wise, not skilled master builder, but wise. It's important that you would see that it's wise because what have they been talking about the whole time? Sophia, wisdom, right? The Corinthian church has said, we're spiritual because we're wiser. And Paul, we don't think you're very spiritual. But the apostle Paul is saying, I couldn't even address you as spiritual people because you're fleshly. He says, I am the one as a wise master builder who laid the foundation and others will come and build on that foundation. He's telling you how the church is going to grow. It's just a matter of fact. But the first warning he gives in verse 11 is to other builders, other leaders like me and others who are called to lead God's church. And I want you to know it's warnings like this that keep me up at night, that make it so that I don't sleep so well when I think I'm the one called to preach. 
He says in verse 11, they're warning to other builders. He said, be careful how you build on this foundation. And in verse 11, he says, for there, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul says there is no other foundation for the church than Jesus Christ and him crucified. I had the junior high and the senior high students over this weekend, and we did a crash course in a communicants class, and we talked about the church and what defined the church. And you know this from Matthew 16, how Jesus looks at his disciples, and he says, who do the people say that I am? And some say Elijah, and some say the prophet, and others say John the Baptist. And he says, but who do you all say that I am? And Peter speaks up on their behalf, and he says, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus says that it is on that truth, that rock of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, that the church is going to be built. There is no other foundation for the church. And the danger would be, and listen, for those of you all who were in communicants class this weekend, remember that one vow that says that you promised to study the purity and the peace of the church? The purity of the church is if another foundation is given that we have to stand on, even if it's a good foundation. If it's anything other than Jesus Christ crucified, whoever is preaching it is laying a false foundation. And that's the first warning. There can't be another one. But in verses 12 and 13, the Apostle Paul uses all these words. If anyone builds on the foundation, and then he uses gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw. And then in verse 13, each one's work will become manifest on the day that it discloses. It is disclosed, excuse me, because it will be revealed by fire. And then in verse 13, he goes on in 15, 13 and 14, anyone and anyone. The reason he's not using names but using this impersonal pronoun is because he's after the Corinthians now. He's saying, beware of who is teaching and who's leading you. Pay attention. He's saying, pay attention to what matters, Corinthians. What matters that they preach in such a way that is coterminous with the foundation, that is consistent with the foundation of Jesus Christ and him crucified, that's consistent with that. He says it's so important that their workmanship, the workmanship of those leaders who are going to come after me as they build up the church, their workmanship is going to be exposed on that day. And he's talking about the day of judgment. He's saying it's going to be exposed like fire, both light and purification in verses 13 and 14. He says that the church is going to be purified. And that which was wood, hay, and stubble in the church is going to be found out and it's going to be burned and it's going to be lost. Pay attention to what matters. What matters is that the church is built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ and him crucified and all things consistent with that. What would that be like for a church that's built on this foundation of Jesus? Well, a church that reveals the truth about who the Father is, merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Exodus 34, right? It would be a church that takes seriously the commands to obey because God revealed himself in the Ten Commandments, right? He said, this is what I'm like. This is what my character's like. It's a church that takes seriously the call to love our enemies. Church, it, it's to take this seriously, 
to say this is what we're built on. It's a church that sacrifices our lives like Jesus sacrificed his life. It's a church that prays the way Jesus prayed and said, Father, you are the one who is to be glorified. It's a church that worships not each other and not a specific identity and not a specific theology, but the God as he is created, but God as he is identified in all of scripture. It's a church that is serious about seeking justice for the oppressed, about calling one another to take obedience seriously. It's a church that is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. I grew up on a mountain, and you would think that on a mountain, you wouldn't have to worry about what you build your house out of. But my neighbor, a guy named Mike, owned a concrete factory. And when he went to build his house on the other side of the golf course, he dug a foundation until he got to the bedrock of the mountain. Literally right outside of his house are like these 100-foot cliffs that descend down the mountain. He built his house on that rock. But then do you know what he did? He poured the foundation of his house with concrete, solid concrete. And then you want to know what he made the walls of his house out of? Every internal and every external wall of his house. Guess what it was made out of? That's right, concrete. Now, he did own a concrete factory, so you go, well, that kind of makes sense. But guess what he made his roof out of? Yes, that's right. He made his roof out of concrete. The, the, very, the very tiles of his roof were concrete. From the bottom to the top of that house, that house was made of the same thing as the foundation, church. I want you to know that as we, your leaders, gather together, we are always sharpening the pencil with each other and saying, are we building a church on anything other than Christ and Christ crucified? And you, church, should be asking the question, am I hearing anything other than Christ and Christ crucified? I have a question for us. We are 12 years old. This is my question. Christ the King Church Newton, are we becoming, as a church, not as individuals, do not take this to your individual life. That is not what this passage is about. This passage is about the church. Every you in this passage is plural. Are we more cruciform in our shape? Are we like Christ in our Savior? Are we together like Christ in our actions? You see how searching Paul is to the church in 1 Corinthians. The last thing that I want you to see is not just the church's, wow, not just the church's, the implications of their issue that they had. But I want you to see how Paul brings it back to their identity. And this is verse 16 and 17. We're going to end here. This is the church's identity. It's very clear, isn't it, what he says. You are God's temple. The Holy Spirit dwells in you all. It's not you singular are God's temple. That's not what he says in verses 16 and 17. He says you all are God's temple. The Holy Spirit dwells in you all. But he doesn't just say it. He asks a question. Why is that important? Why is it important that the Apostle Paul says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that the Holy Spirit dwells in you? Listen, 
Anytime anyone tells us something, the risk of just hearing Charlie Brown's teacher in our ears just goes off, right? You just hear walk, 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 walk. We just miss it. But anytime we are asked a question, we perk up. Do you not know? Where would the Apostle Paul have learned that? I would encourage you this summer, spend some time in the Old Testament and see how many times God interacts with his creation by asking questions. And where is the first one that you know? Adam, where are you? The Apostle Paul picks up the language of Isaiah. He says, do you not know? Have you not heard? This is the first of nine times. The Apostle Paul is motivated as he tells the Corinthians, this group of people who are sexually immoral, who are pursuing sensuality, who believe they're spiritual, so spiritual that they think they can do anything that they want, who get drunk at the Lord's Supper, he says to them, you church, you Corinthians, are God's temple. He's emphasizing the place of Yahweh's dwelling among them. Listen, the Corinthians lived in a city that was filled with temples. Newton has a lot of temples in it, a lot of Jewish temples that I've found. In Corinth, there would have been Greek temples all around. Maybe the temple to Aphrodite was the greatest temple that they would have known. The goddess of love and lust, beauty and pleasure, passion and procreation. When Paul says to the Corinthians, you are a temple, they would have known exactly what he was talking about. And for the apostle Paul, he would have been conceiving a tabernacle where God dwells among his people. It's not just the value of their lives built together. It's the fact that the church is made up of what? Communicants class members, the people of God and God's presence with them. Right? God is drawn near the very thing that you heard in your call to worship. God is with us. God is among us. Peter says we're like living stones, and God tabernacles with us. Church, listen to this. And again, you are not the church in Corinth. Do not hear that. But ask yourselves, do we have any of those tendencies do you believe that God is here with us right now in Newton, Massachusetts? My mother-in-law loves to say Newton, Massachusetts. That God is right here. He is with us. His spirit is with us. The Apostle Paul says you have the Holy Spirit. What is the Holy Spirit? When Jesus taught the disciples how to pray... He said, give us this day our daily bread. And in the parable that immediately follows the Lord's Supper in Luke, he gives this story about bread. And he says, which of you has a friend that if you went to him at midnight and you said, look, I need some bread because somebody came to my house and I need bread for them, which of you has a friend that wouldn't give it to you? And he's trying to say, you of course would give it to you. And he said, your father, who knows that you give, need good gifts, how much more so will your heavenly Father give you the Holy Spirit when you ask for it? You see, the Holy Spirit is the gift to the church. It's tomorrow's bread today. 
It's that eschatological presence that the church is going to share with God given to us today, that the Holy Spirit is with us today. Corporately, you guys, this isn't about us as individuals. Listen, some of us have a very low view of the church. All we have to do is look about how many times we think it's important to go to church. The Apostle Paul is saying the Holy Spirit dwells with us as we are gathered. This is a big deal that we're gathered together to worship. And the key is that the Holy Spirit is given to us. We are people of the Spirit, right? Do you see what he's doing? This is what Jesus Christ died to accomplish for us. Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins so that we might be forgiven, that our sins might be dealt with definitively once and for all. Go back and read 1 John 1, 8 and 9 so that God would dwell among us again, so that the gift of the Spirit would be with us. Jesus said, it's better that I go, that the Spirit would come. We are people of the Spirit, Christ the King Church Newton. We are people of the Spirit because of what Jesus has done for us. Do we together, not individually, this is corporate, do we bear the fruit of the Spirit? Listen, I'm going to end with verse 17 that we understand how big of a deal this is to God. Listen to verse 17. What does he say? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple, right? He restrates his, his statement again. Did you know that this is the strongest warning in the New Testament? What warning do you think your mind would have gone to? Another warning in the New Testament. Maybe when Jesus said it's better uh, that a millstone be thrown around your neck and you be tossed into the river than you make one of these little ones like that one right there stumble. Right? You say that's a pretty strong warning, right? God loves you all so much. Look at me. Don't look down. Don't be ashamed to hear how much God loves you. God loves you all so much that he gives his strongest warning toward anyone who would seek to tear you down. Toward anyone. He loves you that much. He loves us, CTK Newton. Our broken body, our immature body, our still sinful church body. We are his I went to an installation service this morning for somebody that was ordained, and it was downtown, and um, it was incredible. It was a great service, and the man was in the middle of his preaching, and there was a center aisle in this church, and all of a sudden, this little kid starts running down the aisle right toward him, and the minister stops, and he goes, hey, buddy, and, and I was like, okay, I grew up in a church where if a baby cried, the minister said, would someone please remove the baby from the sanctuary? And this guy stops in mid-sentence in his sermon. He goes, hey, buddy, do you need a hug? And it was the minister's son. And he knelt down, and he gave this kid a big hug. And he said, now go see your mom. I wondered about my heart and my belief of whether or not God loves his church when the first thing that popped into my mind was, would somebody get that kid out of the sanctuary? It was just amazing to see that this morning. 
You guys, the Apostle Paul is speaking with passion to the Corinthians because he wants them to change. He wants them to know their identity. He doesn't want them confused anymore. You've heard the phrase, the most popular phrase of all of anti-littering literature of all time. What is it? Don't mess with Texas, right? You know that's where that came from, right? It's a don't litter phrase. Don't mess with Texas. If you wanted to understand what the Apostle Paul is saying in verse 17, he's saying don't mess with the church. Don't mess with its foundation. Don't seek division. Don't seek strife. Because when you are, church, we're using ourselves as human beings and we're thinking of ourselves humanly instead of sisters and brothers, women and men of the Spirit of God. The Apostle Paul is only reiterating God's love for the church that he proved once and for all in sending his son. Listen, he loves us so much that every time we preach and are heard preaching like this and we're moved as a body to repent, we're also fed. That's why we come to this table. Will you pray with me as we move to this table now?